Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We're delighted to be back. And of course, we're doing a countdown to election time and it is right around the corner now. And I guess for the last six or seven weeks, we've been saying there was a surprise each week. This week, I guess the surprise was there was no major surprises, no major changes. But the countdown is on, and uh, uh, the same states that were in play are still in play, and uh, people are still uh, looking at a lot of surveys. And so for that reason, we have turned to a frequent guest who's been with our program to uh, give us her observations of what's going on and what is likely to happen. And that guest would be Becky Gray, who's the Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation. She's been with us several times. Uh, numerous times, quite frankly, and uh, uh, we always enjoy having her on. Well, Becky, uh, the countdown is on, and uh, it's uh, uh, the, the race in North Carolina uh, uh, for the presidency appears to be very, very close. What, what's your observation? Well, that's what we're seeing, and uh, of course, there's lots of polling. First of all, Don, there's a lot of attention in North Carolina as the ninth largest state, as a traditional purple state, we are really the the road to the White House goes right through North Carolina. So we're a very important state. A lot of people are paying attention to this. And what we're seeing from polling and other indications, which is all we've got at this point, of course, the votes haven't started to be counted, but it does look like it is neck and neck. The polling is within the margin of errors. And it seems to have tightened each day over the last week or so. So I think at this point, I don't know anybody who can really predict the outcome of what we're going to see after Election Day as far as the presidential race is here in North Carolina. And on a national level, uh, the two states, I guess, that we in North Carolina ought to be really watching is Florida, because if Florida goes for Biden, then Trump probably has no way to be elected anyway. But uh, if he... Uh, wins Florida, and of course that one is just as close as North Carolina, then North Carolina becomes uh, probably the key state. Right. Either way, we're very important. Some of those swing states that we're looking at are uh, Pennsylvania, Arizona, um, Georgia. So there are others, but it all comes down to, as, as you circle back, it all comes down to North Carolina is one of the most important states in the country, which is why we've gotten so much attention. I mean, look at the look at the political ads, look at the number of visits that we've had from the president's team and from the Biden team. Um, if, if you like politics, man, this is the place to be. Well, you know, there's been so much uh, attention paid to early voting. The question gets to be is all this late attention, is it going to actually have any real effect because so many votes are have been in for some time and continue to come in. And uh, so far from what I've read, and you are probably uh, better, uh, better read on this than I am, that uh, most people made up their choice four or five weeks ago and, and haven't changed. Uh, there doesn't appear to be any large numbers of people who are changing. So it looks like it's going to get down to who gets their vote out. Well, exactly. And, you know, Don, we've been seeing this for weeks in this newly, even more polarized environment that we're in. Um, there are a lot, of, as you mentioned, there are a lot of voters who had decided some time ago, and it's along the political lines of who they're going to support and who they're going to vote for. So it comes down to that very important and that narrow group in the middle 
as to really what is going to determine and what's going to swing the result of the election. Uh, you mentioned the early voting. 53% of registered voters have, have voted so far. About 4 million votes have already been cast in North Carolina. So, you know, we're not finished yet. A lot of people, I think, with the pandemic and just some of the uncertainty of surrounding this, whether it's in whether it's the schools, whether it's just, you know, taking care of your families, a lot of people have decided to go ahead and vote early. So we're seeing record numbers there. But we've still got a couple days of early voting left. And then, of course, Election Day. And a lot of people, um, traditionally Republicans, but a lot of people like to vote on Election Day. So I think by the time we get to the end of this, we're going to see record turnout here in North Carolina, perhaps even surpassing that that we saw in 2016, which had established the high water mark for um, how many people turned out to vote. And I believe in 2016, it was 69% of the registered voters did cast their vote. And we're already at 53% of the registered voters. So I think we're on track to have probably a record turnout. Do you think that uh, we are now setting a precedent for early voting now that will continue and maybe even be expanded by the next election process? You know, Don, I do. And I think as people get comfortable with it, and I think as people see different options to vote, that they will take advantage of that. Um, And I think that we may also see more people doing the absentee ballot option as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that I think it will. And um, as people get more comfortable with it, early voting in North Carolina is, is relatively new. And there were people that were uncomfortable with it. But I think that, again, people have gotten more comfortable with it. And so I think that, that this will from here on be more of the normal way that we vote. Now, we may not see quite as many people taking advantage of the absentee ballot option once the pandemic is finished and people are a little bit more comfortable with getting out and getting out in crowds. But um, yeah, I think it's, you know, I think the the way we vote in North Carolina, we've probably um, moved to to a new era in that. And and I think that's a good thing. I think the, the more options that we have and the more People that are comfortable out getting vote and are encouraged to cast their vote, I think is a, I think is a healthy thing. Uh, we continue to see a lot of uh, people. Uh, the registrations grow, and and they seem to be sticking to the same sort of percentages. Uh, of course, the unaffiliated tally in North Carolina keeps growing, and uh, uh, of course, almost everyone who's unaffiliated is going to voting for a Democrat or a Republican. So. That makes it very difficult for uh, those who are in the political process to know how that's going to shake out. Yeah, and what we see now just with those numbers is it's just about a third, a third, and a third. So we have a lot of people that are registering unaffiliated. And I think that's a sign of maybe some discontent with the two major political parties in that a lot of people just don't feel like, quite feel at home in either of the parties and so have registered unaffiliated. And we continue to look at what exactly does that mean and how are those unaffiliated voters going to vote? And that's something that the political science analyst and the people that really dive into the data will be looking at after this election. I'm not sure at this point. And of course, this is this is kind of a bellwether election. I mean, I think we're not sure of what a lot of these things mean, but I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of analysis after this and determining just who are those unaffiliated voters. 
Well, you know, I, I've made it really clear on this program numerous times that I am one who is registered unaffiliated. One of the things that kind of bothers me about the growing number of unaffiliated is, is you're taking out uh, the possibility of those folks actually ever being a candidate for any office because um, they probably are going to have to uh, change their affiliation back to either Democrat or Republican as the process is now. Do you see any way in the world that there will ever be an opportunity for unaffiliates to uh, run as an unaffiliate? You know, I do. And the reason why I say that is because we're seeing more of that. And Don, the, the description that you've just given of what your political stand is as an unaffiliated voter, um, I think is a way that a lot of people um, a lot of people fall into that category. We are seeing some members of Congress, some members of, I don't think there are any in the General Assembly right now, but small numbers, but we are seeing that. And I thought it was really interesting in the western part of North Carolina in Transylvania County, which is a, a pretty strong Republican county. Three of their county commissioners have taken the Republican off their names as they serve on the county commission, really with the explanation that some of the national big political um, positions that the Republican Party has taken don't have anything to do with the responsibilities and the duties that they have as local county commission um, elected officials. And so, you know, we may be seeing more of this of where um even those who are sitting in office may be taking a political party designation off their name as they serve. Um, and then I think that as we see the unaffiliated number of voters and registrants within that, again, in North Carolina, it's about a third and a third and a third. I think we'll see more people interested in running, more voters interested in looking at unaffiliated candidates and what they stand for and how they might fill the role of particular elected official elected positions across the state. So yeah, I think it's I think it's an option. And I tell you, you know, if this polarization continues, I think a lot of people are just tired of the big divide and the fights between the two major parties and maybe looking for some sort of middle ground and uh, unaffiliated maybe just where that middle ground is. Well, unfortunately, the, the, most of the people who are in the middle of both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party now have gone to unaffiliated. So it leaves the parties uh, even more slanted toward uh, the Democratic Party, more slanted toward the liberal view, and the Republican Party more uh, 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 aligned with the conservative view. And the middle has sort of left both parties, and that, that seems to me to be dangerous. I think it's very dangerous, and I think we're seeing that play out. Uh, we've seen it over the last several sessions of the General Assembly where that polarization has taken place. And again, that moderate middle ground where I think most North Carolina North Carolinians sit has gotten smaller and smaller, and there's less room for compromise. And I think that the process and I think that our government is worse off. I think that the representation that we have is worse if we have continue to have this real polarization. So, Don, you know, something I think is going to have to happen now. Maybe that the two major political parties decide they need to come back to the middle. Our guest is Becky Gray, and we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers after we take time out for this message. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the congressional races that, that will be going on on uh, Tuesday. 
And we will do that right after these messages. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A teenager learning the lingo. Today I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying, that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying, totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with Becky Gray here on Carolina Newsmakers. And, uh, of course, we all know that Tuesday is a really anticipated day. And it may be a week of anticipation because, Becky, as we've talked, there are so many close races that it is highly likely that when we go to bed on Tuesday night, no matter what time we go to bed, the election process may not be concluded. But we will probably have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. Uh, and uh, uh, so Tuesday night's going to be fun. Uh, we want to turn now and look at the congressional races. And since the last election, of course, North Carolina has done some uh, uh, redistricting. And uh, a number of people are running in districts that are at least partially new to them, uh, the incumbents. And, of course, we've got a couple of open, open seats. And uh, we've got a couple of interesting races. Now, by registration, North Carolina was 10 uh, Republicans and three Democrats in the current Congress. The way that it was uh, processed, uh, it should be eight and five next time if people follow party uh, registrations. But as we said, we have so many independents and so many unaffiliated, that's a little hard to call. So as you look at the various congressional districts in North Carolina, um, how, how do you see them? And you can just start from wherever you want to, the uh, uh, incumbents that are safe, and then move from that to the ones that uh, uh, may, may have more competition than they thought. Right. And yeah, this is going to be interesting. Um, so some of the safe seats, David Price, who has represented the Chapel Hill area, the middle of the state for many years, is in a very safe seat. Uh, Virginia Fox, Patrick McHenry, uh, Greg Murphy over in the old Walter Jones district all seem to be pretty secure. Even though some of those districts have been tweaked a little bit, they seem to be in pretty good shape. Alma Adams, uh, G.K. Butterfield, same same kind of thing. The ones that are in play or will change are the, the second district, which is the one where George Holding had held that seat for a number of uh, sessions. It looks like with the redistricting, that is a much stronger Democrat district. Deborah Ross is the 
the candidate for that that looks like she, of course, you know, we won't know until the election results are in, but things are looking very good for her to be elected to that seat. Same kind of situation in the sixth district that was held by Mark Walker. He also decided not to run this time. Kathy Manning is the Democrat in that district that, again, with that being redrawn, seems much more favorable to her to take that seat. But then the two most um, contentious seats, kind of the ones that we're watching the most closely, are the 8th District, which is with the incumbent Richard Hudson and being challenged by the Democrat Pat Timmons Goodson, who is a former judge. A ton of money is being poured into that district, particularly on the Democratic side. Uh, The issues there seem to be around, that that district is uh, Fort Bragg, heavy military, influence there. Also, as we're seeing across the country and right here in North Carolina, the reaction to COVID. Um, Richard Hudson has aligned with President Trump on many issues and Trump's response to COVID. Pat Timmons Goodson is is attacking him on that and saying that Trump has not handled that well. So that's a pretty, um, that's one we're watching and could certainly uh, flip to Democrat. And then the other one is the 11th district, which is the one way up in the western part of the state that is an open um, election this time with Madison Cawthorn, a 25-year-old Republican who won a very, um, a, a very full Republican primary. And then Mo Davis, who is a retired Air Force colonel. Uh, that race has become very ugly. A lot of accusations going back and forth. It's kind of, you know, the worst that we've seen. And in my view, this is the one where the ugly political fight has occurred in that 11th district. That is still a pretty strong leaning Republican district. I think at the end of the day, uh, Madison Cawthorn will probably take that more because he has an R beside his name than anything else. But that's another contentious district that that we're watching. So it could be uh, 8-5 or it could be uh, closer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We'll see. And then, of course, Don, don't forget, um, you know, in this next redistricting after the next census, we could have, North Carolina could have 14 seats. So how we divide yeah. those up and what those look like and how those reflect the voting population of North Carolina is something else. So this congressional map that, that we're seeing for this election could could and most likely will be the last time that North Carolinians will vote for 13 districts. Moving forward, we'll have 14. And if people keep moving here, we could even have more than that. Well, for those who did quick math, when I said it might be 7-7, uh, I, I did go to Chapel Hill, and we didn't uh, emphasize uh, math very much over there. The, if one seat flips, it would be 7-6, not 7-7. But uh, I, uh, I confess that uh, my lack of uh, attending math classes is uh, still apparent to this day. Uh, you know, I, I read something this week that uh, Walker uh, is, uh, you know, who chose Congressman Walker, uh, Walter, who chose not to run is now thinking about running next time. Have you heard that? Well, you know, I don't think anything's off the table. And, you know, Mark Walker is relatively young. He was a very effective congressman, particularly with the Republican caucus. And, um, Yeah. So, you know, again, what we look at after redistricting, there's certainly some possibilities there for him. It would not surprise me, Don, to to hear that, Um, you know, particularly if we have a 14th district that would probably be some permutation of around the middle of the state. But don't forget, too, Richard Burr's Senate seat is going to be available. That will be on the election in two years. 
And, um, you know, there, there's lots of options. So we'll see what happens. But would, would not surprise me. And, you know, that's something else. After the dust settles after this, it'll be interesting to look at not only who won, but who lost their election, what that looked like, and then what next steps might be available for them. The issue is what uh, do you think turned, has, has, has ended up being the decisive issues with North Carolinians, is it COVID-14 or is it the economy or what? What do you think the main issues have ended up being? I think the main issue is COVID, COVID-19, the pandemic. I think, you know, in polling that we've seen of what is the most important issue to you, that is the one that consistently rises to the top, but there are things associated with it. You mentioned the economy. I think that's another thing that North Carolinians are very concerned about. And the impact of the pandemic with Governor Cooper shutting down the state and the impact that that has had on the economy, on people's businesses, on unemployment, on just people's outlook and concerns about the economy connected to COVID-19, but very much an issue that people care about. And on another one, well, it's also health care which again is associated with the pandemic and people's fear, people's confidence, people's ability to be able to get healthcare um, across the state. And this is a, a healthcare is one of those issues that there's a divide between the rural part of North Carolina and the urban part of North Carolina. So healthcare is, is something else that people really care about. Again, kind of connected to the COVID-19. And then finally, education is also very high up in what North Carolinians are concerned about. And it has a COVID impact as well with the schools being shut down in March with now going to almost entirely virtual learning for most school children or we're going back and forth with it, what that's going to look like, choices that families have had, um, the impact that this has had on families and people being able to work. And then, you know, as we're kind of beginning to look to come out of this, there's a lot of concern about learning loss and what we're going to be dealing with with students when we come out of this and how we're going to be able to make that up. Circling back to concerns about the economy, are people our students that are coming through the education system, not just K-12, but community colleges and universities too, as we have been forced to get education in a different manner, how is that going to impact people's ability to get jobs, businesses availability, to get workers? Um, you know, all of this stuff is connected and it all comes back to COVID-19 and the pandemic and everything that that has impacted. Why do you think, have people become accustomed to, uh, you know, there was for the last, I don't know how long, people have been talking about Obamacare as being a major care. It seems like that Obamacare is sort of, uh, I don't know, become accepted and no one is uh, overly concerned about it as much as it has been in past elections. Uh, the Republicans, I know President uh, Trump in the debate, uh, I, I was surprised that uh, uh Vice President Biden didn't pick up on it, but uh, one time President Trump said, when I become president, I'm going to work on uh, Obamacare. And of course, he's been president for four years. I thought that was a real slip and one that uh, President Biden kind of missed because he said, when I become president. Uh, I thought that was interesting. But Obamacare doesn't seem to be as much of a concern as it was, uh, say, four years ago. 
Well, you know, Obamacare has become a catchphrase for this massive health care reform that took place a number of years ago. And as you recall, I mean, it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, and it had taxes in it, and it had all kinds of things in it. So when you say Obamacare, that is a big order. Um, you know, what we're looking at now is a concern that people can have health insurance when they have pre pre-existing conditions, and also availability of health care. And so, you know, that's really where the questions are. But don't forget, President Trump got rid of the individual mandate, which was deemed, I think, unconstitutional. And so that was a big part of dismantling the government-run health care, which is really what you're talking about when you're talking about Obamacare. Yeah. But uh, basically, that's not as big of an issue as it has been in the past. As far I think as this access, year's yeah, and I think access to health care and really affordability of health care, particularly in this economy and the economy that we're going to be dealing with over the next months and probably years is something that really is weighing on people's mind. And I think that the leaders at the state level and the national level are going to have to look at making health care more affordable and get back to a patient-driven type of health care system rather than a government takeover of health care. And as you said, the pre-existing conditions is of major concern. Uh, and I've heard that in a lot of political ads on both sides of the aisle. Well, our guest is Becky Gray. She's the Senior Vice President of John Locke Foundation. And we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers. And we're going to turn to a discussion of the United States Senate seat, which is so important not only here in North Carolina, but uh, as far as control of the Senate. And we'll do that when we return with our next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Our guest is Becky Gray. She's the Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation, a frequent guest on Tom Campbell's North Carolina SPIN program and frequent guest on our program and one of the many people that we turn to for insight into what's going on, not only in the state of North Carolina, but nationally. And uh, as we promised right before the break, we're going to turn our attention to talking about the uh, United States Senate rate, the incumbent uh, Tom Tillis uh, and uh, the uh, challenger, Cal Cunningham, uh, 
several interesting things have happened in that race uh, that uh, don't have a lot to do with uh, politics, but uh, do have a lot to do with who's going to get elected. So we want to talk about that. And, and of course, millions and millions of dollars have been poured into it because uh, if the North Carolina Senate seat flips to the uh, Democratic side, it is highly likely that the Democrats will either control or at least have a uh, standoff in the United States Senate. So an important race, Becky. It's a very important race. And again, North Carolina is the, you have to get through North Carolina to get to really who's going to control Washington, D.C. and the country. So it's a very, the North Carolina's U.S. Senate race is a very important race, not only to North Carolinians and who's going to represent us in Washington, but Don, as you mentioned, what the balance of power will be with the U.S. Senate. And of course, you know, we've seen what that how much that matters with a lot of decisions that are being made. I mean, just this recent appointment of Amy Barrett Cohen to the, or Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court is, you know, just one of the illustrations that we've seen lately of how important who controls the Senate is. Uh, so there's a lot at stake and North Carolina is a big race. And of course we have Tom Tillis who is running for re-election. We have Cal Cunningham, a former North Carolina state Senator who is trying to unseat him. Tons of money piled into this race coming a lot from out of state, uh, particularly the donations to Cal Cunning's, Cunningham's race, which again, illustrates how important this race is to the country. Um, we saw it, Cal Cunningham, at least in the polling, had a, a considerable lead um, until the last several weeks and until this um, the scandal broke when we discovered that, and he has not denied this, that he has been having an affair with a married woman who is married to a military um, army person. Arm, her husband is in the army. Cal Cunningham also served in the army, was a JAG officer, and was a a superior officer to this woman's husband. So there are some concerns about court martials. There are concerns about investigations going along that way. So in other words, Cal Cunningham kind of hit a tremendous roadblock in his campaign. This was something that was not expected, um, but it has become a real question in his race, um, you know, whether or not you can trust Cal Cunningham and is he who he says he is, Um portraying himself as a, a Boy Scout, portraying himself as his campaign has been about integrity and honesty and those kind of things. And then, you know, we find this this flaw in that presentation for him. So what we've seen is the polls have really tightened in this race. He has cut his lead over Tom Tillis um, about in half just in the last couple of weeks. So how this plays out between now and election day, you know, I don't know. You know, this is also a thing, you know, a lot of people had voted voted before this scandal broke. That's kind of one of the things that people have said about early voting and why they wait until later is they want to make sure that they have all the information that's available on election day. And this is an example of why someone might do that. Well, and the other interesting thing to me is that uh, for some reason or another, and I'm not quite sure I've fully understand this, that Tom Tillis has never fully endeared himself to the Republican base of President Trump. They, they have not always embraced him. And part of the reason was at one point in time, he resisted one of the Trump programs. But uh, the other side of that is, uh, or the, uh, 
why would they not still vote for uh, for Tillis? Because the only other candidate on the slate is Cal Cunningham. Well, yeah, so and one I, one thing yeah, that I've ahead. heard one thing that I've heard in this race, um, and you know, you hear it in elections, but but I've heard it in the Senate race pretty consistently of voters on both side of that are holding their nose and voting for a candidate that they don't agree with or perhaps whose principles don't reflect their own, um, but they are voting for the party. And again, because the Senate seat is so important. So I think we're having a lot of nose-holding voting in the Senate race. Well, let's assume for a moment that Cal Cunningham might win. And then let's assume, and this is an assumption, that... uh, the military does elect to process the case against him and maybe gives him a dishonorable discharge or whatever they might do. Uh, at that point in time, the Senate seat would be in Democratic hands and would be up for the governor to appoint the successor. Is that correct? I believe that's true, um, but it does come back to the voters before the end of the six-year term. Um, I believe that's how it works. But that's a consideration that I think voters, you know, should, the piece of information that voters might find helpful, um, that, you know, this is this is what they're dealing with, with Cal Cunningham and the uncertainty with it. At the other hand, with Tom Tillis, you know what you have. He has a strong record. He is a former Speaker of the North Carolina House and was the Speaker of the North Carolina House when we had the transformational tax reform, when we had the regulatory reform. You know, this is continuing through this day, but in the last decade, many of the reforms that we talk about that has made North Carolina a model for the rest of the state were done under Tom Tillis's leadership when he was the Speaker of the House. And he has taken, you know, a lot of that sort of fearless, get the job done leadership to the Senate. And when you are that kind of leader and you do those kind of things, you are going to step on some toes along the way. And and he has. But he has a he has a record that people can look at and decide whether they want to support him, whether they want to vote for him or not. And Don, you're right. I mean, he has um, come up against President Trump on some certain things, but he does have the endorsement of the president and is, I think, the big issues that are out there with, you mentioned Obamacare, healthcare, with a lot of the national security things. Um, Tom Tillis is clearly standing with the president on those, on those issues that are important to him and are important to many North Carolinians. I want to get back to one point, then uh, that you made that if uh, if for some reason or another Cal Cunningham does not fulfill his term, then it would be in two years we would have two United States Senate races going on in North Carolina at the same time. As if things couldn't get more interesting than they are this year. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Okay, so uh, that that's of course we're that's pure conjecture at this point in time. Let's turn to the governor's race and the lieutenant governor's race in North Carolina. Uh, governor Cooper seems to be in almost all circumstances, um, all, all the polls I've seen, has a very comfortable lead, and that doesn't appear to be tightening at this point in time. What's your observation? Um, well, you know, Don, it's tightening a little bit. I mean, you know, the latest poll, the governor has um, has enjoyed double-digit poll results over his opponent, Dan Forrest, um, really throughout the election. But just this last week, um, he's up by nine is the latest poll that I saw. So it's tightening a little bit. It would be somewhat of an upset for Dan Forrest to defeat, 
to defeat Roy Cooper. Um, but, you know, in, in this day and time, anything can happen. I think that Cooper is really running on his response to the COVID-19 and um, there are people on both sides of this issue. There are people that have been very critical of the way that he has shut down the economy, of the um, the inequity in the way that he has allowed businesses to open up or to remain closed. Uh, record unemployment has resulted from this. And there, so there's sort of the economic concerns that people have, as well as the health concerns. And everything about COVID and the COVID response in North Carolina, Roy Cooper owns. He will has not conferred with the Council of State and has been criticized for that. Um, he has fought the General Assembly on many of the the things that they have tried to do for the recovery. He has he has forged this himself. And so, whether you like his response or you don't like his response. Governor Cooper owns the COVID-19 response in North Carolina. And then, of course, there's the question of the schools as well. So it's the health care concerns. It's the economic concerns. It's the education concerns. But Roy Cooper owns all of this COVID response. And so this has got to be a, a referendum on his response to COVID. So I'll be interested to see what what that what that looks like. With all the emphasis on the Senate race and the governor's race and the congressional races, one race that often gets uh, neglected is the lieutenant governor's race. Uh, and of course, we have two newcomers running. Um, what's your view and what are your thoughts about the lieutenant governor's race? We have Mark Robinson on the Republican side and Yvonne Hawley on the Democratic side. Um, no matter who wins, we will have our first African-American lieutenant governor in North Carolina. So that's something to, to keep in mind about that that race. The other thing about this race is the lieutenant governor sits on the board of education. They sit on the community college board. Um, so they have an important voice in many different things across North Carolina. But they also preside over the state Senate. And as we watch those results come in, if there is a tie between the Democrats and Republicans in the Senate at 25-25, or as issues become before the Senate and there is a tie vote, the lieutenant governor is the one who breaks that tie vote. Um, so a lot of people are watching that very critically. As a matter of fact, I was really interested to see that uh, Michael Bloomberg has put $8.5 million into Yvonne Hawley's race just this week, um, perhaps looking at you know, what happens if there is a tie in the in the North Carolina Senate. So th this race has been a little bit under the radar, but when you look at it and the repercussions and what the lieutenant governor's role could be, um, you realize how very important this race is. Well, it, uh, it has been under, with all the emphasis on the presidential, the uh, governor's race and the Senate race, it, it does sort of fall uh uh, in, a, in a situation where the public is has not seen a lot of, of uh, news or information or even political plans about it so far, but with that money that you're talking about coming in, it will. Our guest is Becky Gray, and we'll be back with one final segment of Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. I'm a 40-year-old man that walked in there to get his high school diploma. It was very hard for me, but Miss Araceli, she gave me direction. At age 47, Marco finished his high school diploma. 
50% of getting your high school diploma is walking through those doors. The other 50% is doing the work. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them, but I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back with our final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Becky Gray is our guest. A reminder that this program is heard in two different versions. Many of the stations that carry the program carry a half an hour version, and there are two additional segments that those listeners might want to enjoy. If they do, then they go to carolinanewsmakers.com, and they can hear the segments that they missed. It's carolinanewsmakers.com. Or if you'd like to hear any of the uh, previous programs that Becky has been on with us, you can also uh, search her uh, past programs uh, with us and, and listen to those. Becky Gray is Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation, and we have, of course, been focusing almost entirely on the, the uh, election that's coming up on Tuesday. We've talked already about the presidential race, the Senate race, and the congressional races, the governor's race. Uh, an, another uh, situation that is going to be very critical in this election in North Carolina is the race for the North Carolina House and Senate. And since there's been redistricting, uh, those races are going to be a lot tighter uh, and there could be a flip. So let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the, that situation, the North Carolina House and the North Carolina Senate and how you view that may turn out. Um, yeah, and it is going to be a little bit a little bit different with the redistricting of some of the districts that we saw that were tweaked. And then also, Don, you know, as people are moving into North Carolina, we're seeing the demographics and the voting demographics of where people live and what those voters look like switch a little bit. For example, North Carolina's urban areas have become much more democratic, where our urban area or our rural areas are much more Republican conservative voters. So we're, you know, we're also seeing those kind of kinds of shifts. But as we look at it and we look at the different seats and where we may see some changes, uh, we may very well see a North Carolina Senate still controlled by Republicans, but by only one or two seats, 26, 27, maybe 28 Republican seats. And where the differences are, where we're seeing those really contested seats are, again, in our urban areas, um, in Charlotte, in the Greensboro area, in Wilmington, um, and then, you know, kind of rural, but again, the demographics have changed in the northeast part of North Carolina. So 
Some people are saying that it could be a 25-25 split, as we talked about in the earlier segment, where then the lieutenant governor becomes much a bigger player in the Senate. But that's what we're looking at with the Senate. So probably still stay in Republican hands, but by a smaller margin. In the House, we're seeing really the same thing in those same areas of the state where the um, the particular districts of the areas are switching in the Greensboro area, in the Charlotte Mecklenburg, in Wake County, in New Hanover County. Uh, Cumberland County is another area where we could very well see a flip. So, um, you know, as we look at the House seats, again, same kind of thing, 120 seats, we could see a 65-55 split with Republicans maintaining the control. It could be less than that um, in a kind of a outlier year, but could happen. There could also be a 60-60 split in the House, which would make things quite interesting. So that's what we're looking at for the House and the Senate. I predict, and the polling is showing that likely it will remain in Republican hands, but there will be a smaller margin. Now, one thing to remember in this next legislative session that we have, this is following the national census that's taken every 10 years of counting up how many people are in North Carolina. This next General Assembly will be doing the next round of redistricting for the next decade. So also very significant about who has control of those two bodies. And then, of course, there's the same thing. Some of the challenges that we've mentioned before about health care for North Carolinians, access to health care, what education is going to look like post-pandemic. Um, you know, are we going to have lots of choices for kids to find the best educational opportunities for them, or are we going to have more of a union-run school system? And then, of course, the economy, which is, you know, first and foremost for most people of, am I going to have a job? What's that going to look like? Are there going to be additional investments being made in North Carolina? Is our economy going to go back to being one of the most robust in the country? And then what kind of governance are we going to have? Are we going to have one that really restrains? the spending and growth of government, or are we going to have one that expands the growth and and cost of government? So these are the decisions that are really going to rest with the General Assembly. And so what happens in this election, because this next General Assembly will do the next round of redistricting, could very well have an impact and have determine what North Carolina is going to look like for the next decade. I tried to put myself in the position of saying if I were doing the redistricting, how would I do it now that there are so many registered unaffiliates? Because if you line it up purely by a party, uh, as the courts typically look at, um, you've got this large number of people who are registered unaffiliates. Well, they're going to vote Democrat or Republican one way or the other. Uh, how do you do it successfully when you've got so many registered affiliates? Well, you know, I think the key to that, Don, is you make the, the political affiliation way down on the list of criteria that you consider. You know, when you're doing redistricting, the first rule of thumb is that goes back to guaranteeing one man, one vote. So what you want is you want the same or close to, as close as you can get it, um, the same number of people 
in each district, regardless of what their political affiliation is. You know, you also yeah. want to keep communities of interest together. So if you have a farming community, you want that whole district to be look as much alike as you can so that whoever represents that community there's that commonality that would come with it. Uh, you also want to keep counties whole to the extent that you can. You want to, um, you know, keep those those districts and those areas contiguous so that you don't have just those one little tiny point of of contact. You know that there are groups that are that are put together. So if you have those criteria, then the political affiliation really becomes less important and you know, how it falls is how it falls. And what we may very well see is there will always be some districts that are going to really be strong for one party or another, just because that's the way people live. You know, um, more Democrats, more progressives are moving to the urban areas, more conservatives are moving to the rural areas. Um, you know, that's just the way it is. So you're always going to have districts that are strong one way or the other. Um, what you want is a representation of the people in North Carolina. Okay, I've got about uh, a little less than a minute to ask you this question. When we wake up on Wednesday morning, how do you think North Carolina's races are going to turn out for president, governor, and senate? I'm going to put I you think, on the spot. And, um, so you've got the, uh, about the, 30 seconds to give me the, an answer. Okay, these are my thoughts. I think that North Carolina carries President Trump by probably one point. I think that Governor Cooper is reelected governor, and I think that Tom Tillis will return to Washington, but again, with a pretty small margin. My predictions. Well, okay, you should have taken about 15 more seconds because now I don't have another question for you. <laughs> Becky Gray, we appreciate your being with us. Uh, and if you'd like to hear a repeat of this entire broadcast, uh, uh, where we went into depth in the earlier segments on uh, not only the congressional races across the state, but also the governor's race and the Senate race and the lieutenant governor's race, then you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and you can find just that. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, who promises me faithfully each week that he will have another interesting guest for us next week on the same group of stations all across North Carolina. So once again, Becky, thank you so much for being with us. Jason, thank you for producing the program. And uh, uh, we will look forward to seeing you all again next week right here on Carolina Newsmakers. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.